Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at Audible, there are hundreds of thousands of titles waiting for you, hundreds of thousands of books that you can listen to. You can put them on your device. You can walk around with them. You can listen to books while you are in motion. You can listen to books while you are absolutely still. Go to audibletrial.com slash other people. That's audibletrial.com slash O-T-H-E-R. P-E-O-P-L-E. You have to spell it out uh, in the old school way. When you do that, you can get a free audiobook with a free 30-day trial. Go to audibletrial.com slash other people. These are audiobooks. You can listen to them. Go and get one. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right? Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is functionally literate. This is uh, partially articulate. How's it going out there? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California the uh, entertainment capital of the world. It's very nice to be with you, and uh, I have a great show for you. My guest is Todd uh, Goldberg, and uh, we know each other a little bit, he and I. Uh, he's a fellow Californian and a friend of mine and uh, a very fine writer. His latest novel, Gangsterland, is out there now from uh, Counterpoint, and it is receiving a lot of critical acclaim. And for those of you who you know who out there who might be unfamiliar with Todd, uh, in addition to being a writer, he's the director uh, of the uh, University of California Riverside Low Res MFA Creative Writing Program out in Palm Desert, just uh, you know, just a stone's throw from LA. And uh, he also happens to be one of the funnier people out there, uh, like not not funniest writers, but just like a f- funniest people that uh, I know. He, uh, you know, like, like let me put it to you this way: some writers can be funny on the page. Uh, but then, of course, in, in person, they are uh, bleak and filled with angst. Uh, Todd, on the other hand, uh, not only can he be funny on the page, he's also genuinely hilarious in person, while at the same time uh, being very bleak and filled with angst. <laughs> he can do it all. He's very versatile, is what I'm saying. And uh, before we, you know, before we begin, uh, and speaking of angst, I do want to uh, issue some complaints publicly 
about a, a turn of phrase that has become bothersome to me. I need to talk about this. So if you ever, you know, if you ever catch yourself saying, I wish that there was something I could do to another person, I want you to please stop talking and uh, slap yourself as hard as you can. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm essentially serious about this. I, I wish that there was something I could do. And, you know, my argument here is that when people, when I hear people say this, it's usually as a rejoinder, uh, you know, they they have just learned about the suffering of another person. Uh, you know, whether it's one of their, uh, you know, one of your friends is grieving or someone's just lost a job or is in a state of uh, horrible depression, whatever it happens to be. Uh, you hear about this either directly or uh, perhaps secondhand, and then you might catch yourself saying, uh, God, I wish there was something I could do. And, you know, before I go any further, I should uh, confess that I myself, uh, you know, am, am guilty of having said this many times over. So my hands are not clean by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but the other day, and, and, you know, this is actually something I've been noticing, uh, you know, I guess over the past year. And then the other day it came to a head. I overheard somebody say it. I wish there was something I could do. And uh, it occurred to me that the person who said it hadn't given the suffering of the other person like more than like a second of thought. <laughs> it's actually a really brutal thing to say. And it's sad, but the thing that this, this is what pisses me off about it is that it sounds really compassionate. It sounds really kind. It sounds like they're, like it's imbued with all of this empathy and caring when in fact, uh, it's not most of the time. Uh, like someone's like, uh, yeah, you know, I shattered my femur and my disability insurance just ran out. And I think my landlord is going to evict, uh, you know, evict me from my apartment. And I just had to put my cat to sleep. And then the other person's like, God, I wish there was something I could do. <laughs> uh, because of course there is something you can do. Uh, there's actually plenty you can do. You just don't want to do it. And yes, I understand. Uh, you know, sometimes the phrase is actually apt. Like on occasion, there really isn't much that you can do. Uh, however much you wish that there were. Uh, in which case, it's fine to use the phrase. It's fine to say it. But uh, if you really think about it, nine times out of ten, delivering that line off the cuff in conversation uh, you're essentially speaking in code. You're saying, I wish that there was something I could do. And what it means basically is uh, there's no way in hell I'm inconveniencing myself to come to your aid. I just think that people, myself included, are often uh, too quick to rule out the possibility that we might actually be able to do something. Because, uh, you know, doing something in this kind of context requires inconvenience, sacrifice. That's the thing. Like it might require, uh, you know, doing something might require giving away money. Uh, more likely it will, it would require uh, giving away time or uh, deciding to become emotionally uncomfortable on another's behalf, picking up a phone, uh, driving a couple of hours when you don't feel like it, cashing in some uh, personal favors that you otherwise might have spent on yourself.
I wish there was something I could do. There's always something you can do. (laughs) Almost always. That's my point. It's just a shitty thing to say. It's too easy. My dog ran away. I haven't seen him in a week. Oh, by the way, I have cancer. I wish there was something I could do. You could send some, you know, just send some flowers. Take the person out for a drink, whatever it is. Take them to dinner. Don't get them drunk if they have cancer. (laughs) I wish there was something I could do. You might as well just tell someone to go fuck themselves, you know? Like, just be honest if you're going to do that. Watch what you say. Hey, I just got laid off and my significant other just left me and I'm so depressed that I haven't eaten or left my bedroom in like 72 hours. Go fuck yourself. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Todd Goldberg. Uh, once again, he is the author of a novel called uh, Gangsterland. It's available now from Counterpoint Press. A great pleasure always uh, to speak with him. And uh, very exciting to see this book uh, make its way out into the world uh, with such fanfare and such a great critical acclaim. So here he is, folks. This is Todd Goldberg. And the new novel, once again, is called Gangsterland. I am currently sitting in my office at the beautiful University of California, Riverside's Palm Desert Graduate Center. Palm Springs. Yes. (laughs) That's your home turf. That's your home turf. Yes. This is where I live. But I mean, like, weren't you, were you raised there at least partially? Did you grow up in the desert? Yeah, I went to high school. Well, actually, I went to eighth grade and, um, and high school in the desert. I, I actually originally grew up and I originally grew up in Walnut Creek, California, in the beautiful uh, Bay Area. And then my mom got a job here in Palm Springs as a society columnist. And so we moved here when I was, I guess, 14, something like that. Okay. Okay. So this is, because like, you know, coming from the Midwest, like the, you know, the West in general has always sort of mesmerized me in terms of its uh, topography and that's like the grandness of it, the grandness of scale. But when I think of like growing up in the desert, like Palm Springs is the desert. Every time I go out there, there's something sort of extraterrestrial about it to me and, and exotic. Like what was it actually like to grow up in Palm Springs? It was boring. <laughs> you know, the, the thing about Palm Springs today versus Palm Springs um, in the 1980s when I was a kid is that Coachella comes out here now every year. And so there is this, um, there's culture and there's art that is interesting to young people. 
but in 1985, when I moved here, um, it was old Hollywood. And that I mean, literally everyone who was old from Hollywood lived here. <laughs> and so there, there was no, um, there was nothing here for young people other than a water park, where in fact, uh, social distortion once came played or bad religion, one of the two. I remember being very young and having one of those bands come play at the water park and it being, being excellent. But what it did, um, have is that, you know, because there was nothing out here to do in 1985 for a kid, and there was all this open space, that gave rise to the the desert bands, like um, the bands that became, you know, Queens of the Stone Age, it was Sons of Caius, um, and we'd have these parties out in the middle of the desert, these generator parties where there'd be you know, punk music and, um, you know, bands playing at, at these undeveloped housing tracks also that existed. There's there's a part of Palm Springs now that's this very hoity-toity part of Palm Springs, which I guess is a lot of Palm Springs. Right. Um, but at the time, for many years, it was this undeveloped housing track, and all the kids went there on the weekends to drink, um, and it was called The Circles because it was a bunch of courts. That's how imaginative we were. We called the undeveloped housing track The Circles. <laughs> and so... Every weekend uh, at, on Friday night, everyone would go there with their wine coolers and their stolen decanters of liquor from their grandparents' house. And we'd go there and we'd drink. And then at 11 o'clock at night, uh, the cops would come. And the cops who had all grown up in the same place, too, and drank at the circles every night, would come and they'd bust the party. They wouldn't arrest anybody, although everyone was, you know, super high and super drunk and 16 and send us all home. And then every weekend following that, they'd come and do the same thing. And everyone would be surprised that the cops were coming. Oh, shit, dude, the cops are coming. <laughs> Pour out your beer. So wait, and they just send you home, like, driving? Like, okay, kids, get in your cars and yeah. drive. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the other stupid thing, well, there are plenty of stupid things, of course, because when you're young, everything, in retrospect, is stupid. Right. So we drank at the Circles in Palm Springs, and then we drank at a place called the Fifty. And the 50 purportedly was the 50-yard line of the football stadium. But the football stadium was locked, and you couldn't get in. So what you'd do is you'd actually sit in the parking lot of the football stadium, which was one block away from the police station. <laughs> and so you would drink at the 50, and then you'd be surprised when the cops showed up. Wait, and that, like the football um, stadium, you mean like high school football? or? Yeah, high school football. Okay. High school football stadium. All right. Um, so there was that side of it. And then there was just, you know, th this was a period of time also in the desert as a kid where um, the, the entire modern home explosion that has taken over the Coachella Valley um, in the last 15, 20 years, no one cared about the modern home. So all these houses that people now go on tours for were just the shitty houses that your divorced parent moved into <laughs> on the north end of town. You're like, oh, my God. Right. Jason's dad moved into that 1950s house that no one's lived in for 40 years. That's creepy. Well, uh, and now that that house is part of some tour of you know, oh, the the beautiful Eichler homes. Well, yeah, no. See, I was I was watching uh, on uh, iTunes. There's this documentary that's up now called uh, Los Angeles Plays Itself. Have you seen it by any chance? No, I haven't. Okay, it's like this three-hour documentary. It's you know, it's an extraordinarily long documentary, and it is um, stitched together with nothing but clips from old movies, uh, you know, movies from days past. And the, oh, wow. all of the movies are um, filmed in Los Angeles, and the guy is narrating it. He's a really smart guy, and he has, like, this really encyclopedic knowledge of film history and, Los An you know, Los Angeles history. But he's tr kind of trying to, like, point out, you know, how the city of Los Angeles is represented in film and whatnot. And he talks about the uh, Spanish architecture 
you know, like the Spanish bungalows in Los Angeles and the, you know, how like back in the day, uh, you know, mid 20th century, they were sort of looked down upon and now they're like all anybody wants, you know, and they're like a sign of right. like bourgeois taste, you know? <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And that's that's exactly how it is with modern homes in Palm Springs. And also, where I grew up in, in Northern California, in Walnut Creek, there's this, there's all the Eichler homes in Walnut Creek. And those are always the houses that you didn't want to go to on Halloween because you had to walk through this strange um, uh, patio area between the front door and the faux front door. And you were always thinking, oh, you know, someone's going to jump out and attack you or they're going to have shitty candy. <laughs> and so you always avoided those those houses, the Eichler homes. And now, like, I turn on HGTV because I watch a lot of HGTV because clearly I have no life. And <laughs> it's like, oh, we're going to tour the Eichler homes. I'm like, man, those houses were scary at Halloween and weird people with no teeth lived in them. And now – my mom really screwed up. She could have owned one of those for $14,000, and I'd be a billionaire. Well, yeah, no, I mean, Bay Area. My, uh, I spent early part of, uh, like, you know, I was two and three years old, but, like, real estate in the Bay Area back in the day was so cheap. I mean, real estate everywhere, yeah. by comparison, in California was cheap, but uh, a little foresight would have been nice. <laughs> you know, just buy up. <laughs> if my parents had foresight on anything, it would have been nice. Yeah, no, my, uh, my <laughs> wife, my wife, her one of her uh, relatives, I forget who it was, like a grandmother or an aunt or something, Owned a place in Napa and sold it like 30 years ago. Just like would be yeah. worth a fortune today. But right, yeah, uh, hindsight's 2020. So you're, you're growing up in Palm in Palm Springs. You said it was like you know at the time of your uh, youth, kind of old Hollywood. Uh, you know, old mm -hmm. Hollywood people. So were you seeing like Frank Sinatra around town and the people who kind of have a you know historically have a relationship with Palm Springs? Yeah, and importantly, uh, I, I mentioned it briefly, my mom was the society columnist here in town, and so this was a period of time when people actually still read society columns. And so she was a celebrity in Palm Springs. She ate everywhere for free, and all of her friends were old Hollywood stars. And I remember this as vividly as though it were yesterday. And, you know, I, I can't believe how lucky I was that this – particular thing happened, but one night I was at home, I was 17 years old, and my mom called me, and she said, you need to get your tuxedo and drive down to Melvin's, and weirdly, I had a tuxedo. I don't know why I had a tuxedo, <laughs> but I had a tuxedo. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, I think, it, I think, well, my mom dated a lot of dudes who owned suit stores, but didn't sell any suits, and were driven around by guys named Three Finger Philly, so <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think a guy got me a deal. Yeah. Um, but she said, drive down to Melvin's and just tell them that you're with me. And I'm like, Mom, it's 11 o'clock on a Tuesday night. I'm not going to go put on a tuxedo and drive to some bar. And in retrospect, that my mom was inviting me out to a bar on a Tuesday night. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And she said, God damn it, Todd, put on your tuxedo and come to the bar. And I was like, all right. So I put on my tuxedo and I grab my um, cream-colored 1984 Nissan Sentra, and I drive to this rat pack bar in Palm Springs called Melvin's at the Ingleside Inn, which is still there. And the guy says, who are you? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm here to see my mother. She's somewhere in a back room. And he said, oh, okay. He walks in the back room. And Frank Sinatra is standing there on a tiny little stage, and he begins to sing. And so for 45 minutes, Frank Sinatra sang, in this tiny little club, and my mom was like, "You're you're going to witness history here, and you you know that's why you're awake and in a tuxedo. I want you to see this." Wow! And it was remarkable. And you know, at at 17 years old, you know, I looked like the keyboard player from The Cure, and I had all the culture of you know 
that's a dirt. But even then, I realized seeing Frank Sinatra was, you know, was pretty cool. But, you know, my mom was friends with all of these people. You know, Sonny Bono lived across the street from us, and Herman Woke lived up the street from us. Really? Um, yeah, it, it was a... It, it was a strange time. Is he still alive, Herman? He lived long, or he might still be alive, Herman. Walker, I think. Right? I think he's still alive. Is yeah. he still? I think he might. I think he might be like 115 years old. Yeah, I was going to say he's like a centenarian. I think at this point, but he's yeah. still going. So all those people were about, and and my mom, um, you know, she also had uh, romantic relationships with some people of, of repute, and she dated like Artie Shaw for several years, the old band leader. Um, so I saw those people, and they were just my mother's friends. Um, but, you know, weird things had happened because my mom was the society columnist. Like, you know, there'd be a knock on the door, I'd open it, and Zsa, Zsa Gabor would be standing there. Um, and she'd, you know, say, oh, darling, your mother wanted to borrow a necklace. Here you go. And this, <laughs> that's a terrible Zsa, Zsa Gabor invitation. It's like Zsa, Zsa Gabor is filtered through Russian gangster. I give you chicken, you give me car. Uh, <laughs> Wow, that's crazy. I, I did not know that about you. So you, I mean, like, who else? Who else did, like, Zsa, Zsa Gabor shows up? Like, what other interactions were you having? Uh, my mom was good friends with Robert Stack, um, so I used to see him all the time. The un- which unsolved, was unusual mysteries. Because, unsolved Mysteries. Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah. Man. Okay. And, and, you know, it's a little unsettling when you're watching Unsolved Mysteries and Robert Stack is standing in front of a house saying, what no one knew was that that person would soon disappear. And, and then Robert stacks on your front door step <laughs> saying, you know, I'm here to see your mother. And you're like, Oh God, you think out. Um, and my mom was great friends, strangely with, um, with Paul Newman's brother, um, who, and his wife. And so they would show up all the time and, you know, they were, they were good friends. Did, did Paul, um, did Paul and, Newman's brother look like Paul Newman? Paul Newman's brother looked like Paul Newman, except he was bald. Um, and, and taller. But he had those same blue eyes. Yeah. Um, and he was a very nice man. And uh, his name was Arthur. And uh, his wife's name was Patty. I think his wife is still alive. I think Arthur has passed away. But they were, you know, great friends. And then the other thing is that my mom, um, for many years, worked at the Santa Barbara Writers Conference, which was one of the first big writers' conferences around. Um, and this was the 1970s and early 1980s, so it was Writers Conference slash Key Party. Um, <laughs> right. And, you know, so she'd drag me and my sister there every summer, and it was horrible. You know, we didn't want to go. And, but uh, the older I got and the more interested I became in writing, the more I realized, oh, this is pretty cool. But, you know, we'd go and we'd hang out there for a week, and Jonathan Winters would be there, and he'd sit down and talk to you and just hang out because they were all friends and you know, Barnaby Conrad and Robert Mitchum and folks like that. And they were just people that were friends sort of in an ancillary way with my mom. Um, but now I look back and I think, number one, why didn't she marry one of them? Yeah. And then, <laughs> <laughs> Robert Mitchum as a stepdad would have been pretty cool. Yeah, yeah that, would have been, that would have been excellent. There was, there was a brief time um, when my mom shot a pilot to host a – talk show set in Santa Barbara at a hotel called the El Encanto, uh, which I don't know if it's even still there. And uh, Robert Mitchum refused to be on the show, but sat behind her at the hotel bar watching. So he was in every shot so that he was just the local color, Robert Mitchum standing behind my mom. <laughs> I don't think it ever aired. Um, and I remember that her main guest was Kathy Ireland, who at the time had just done, I think, her first Sports Illustrated uh, shoot. 
And my mom said to her, I remember this again very, very clearly because I was embarrassed. She said, if you wore anything more low cut, you'd get a chest cold. <laughs> <laughs> did you, did, were you introduced to Kathy Ireland and you're an adolescent? That must have been a big moment. Yeah, that, that was a fairly um, significant growing moment for me. <laughs> um, oh, so you're... I, was, I, was like, I was like 12 or something, but I remember just thinking, oh, this is, this is an unusual experience. Yeah, well, your mom is a character. Yeah, well, my mom was a lunatic. Yeah. Um, but she was also a character. What, what do you mean? Um, what do you mean, a lunatic? Well, she was, and I. This is. I'm not telling stories. I wouldn't. That I haven't published already. <laughs> um, but I wrote an essay about her that was in. Um, that was in Best American Essays last year, and you know she was she was an abusive, undiagnosed bipolar person her entire life, and um, you know we eventually had to have her committed. Um, you know this was a few years before she died. We had to have her committed. Um, so, you know, she, she was an absolute character and a wonderfully funny person and had great friends and great stories, but when she was at home, she was not a, a good person. Um, and so it's a strange sort of balance to think of in my life is that I have all these bizarre, wonderful stories that involve her. Um, but on the flip side of it, you know, for the, the 40 years that I was alive, but she was alive, um, you know, she was. She was a terribly, you know, abusive, um, not physically, well, sometimes physically, but not in the, you know, hit you with a switch, but more like throw platters of meat at you sort of way. Um, it, it's funny, but it, and true, yeah. um, but just, just not a, just not a very good person, just not a nice person. Um, and so, you know, when you get to a certain age, you start to, I start to think about why she was the way she was and and how I am the way I am, and what parts of her are in me. And, and, you know, it's it's one of those things where I think, man, if I were my age, 43, and was a single parent of four lunatic children, which she was. Where, where was um, your dad? Maybe, where, where was your dad? My parents divorced in 1973, so I was two. And my dad was a TV newsman um, in the Bay Area, and then in Portland and in Seattle. Um so he was an on-camera journalist, and then he became like a, a station manager and a producer for um, for local news. And we basically didn't see him. Um, I didn't see him from 1976 until about 1985. I didn't see him for many years or talk to him. Um, and he wasn't a particularly great person either. You know, he didn't he didn't pay child support. He started families and then left them sort of serially. Um, and so he wasn't he wasn't ever really a part of my life until um in my early twenties when i I decided, well, I should try to get to know this man and see if he's any different to me as an adult than he was to me as a child, and it turned out that that he was still a bad guy <laughs> so remarkably consistent yeah my 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 parents were remarkably consistent in that they were narcissistic sociopaths so <laughs> that was nice well, but I mean you know it's, it's it strikes me because it's like uh Bipolar disorder obviously can be treated, but there are people who live with it who don't ever seek treatment. Or, I mean, did your mother ever medicate? Yeah, and she she was sick too. She had had lupus from starting in 1976, and then had cancer um, for many years before she died of it eventually. And but she was never on antidepressants or anything like this. You know, this was the 1970s, um, the early 1980s. You know, no, no one was, they weren't handing out Zoloft like they do now. Um, 
and so part of me thinks, well, it's not her fault. It's cool. Um, and then the other part of me thinks, but I still had to live with it. Right. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's the sort of existential challenge we have as 21st century adults is knowing that it's chemical, um, knowing that it wasn't their fault, that they didn't necessarily choose to be the kinds of people that they are and that they could have been helped, but that they didn't have the, opp- the opportunities that we now have for $30 a month to get the drugs that we need right. <laughs> and, and get the treatment that we deserve. Right. Um, and she had, and so, she had know, four children? Yes. So it was you. Four children. How many boys? It was me. There, there's my brother, Lee, that, who's also a novelist, right. uh, the big-time famous novelist, Lee Goldberg, um, and my sister, Karen, and my sister, Linda. And my sisters, Karen and Linda, both write books together as well. They do uh, art books together. Um, so she had four children, all four of whom were artistically inspired and therefore devious, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> it could not have been easy. And how? And where were you, where were you in the, uh, like, were you oldest, youngest, middle? I'm the youngest. You're the youngest. I'm the youngest. Okay. Yes. So, I mean, for, but four kids, single parent, that's a lot. Yeah, and working as a journalist in the Bay Area, you know, covering society in Oakland and in San Francisco and in the, you know, the, the bustling suburb of Walnut Creek, um, you know, she wasn't, she, her job was to go to parties. Right. So she wasn't home. Right. Um, so I, I see, I, I, I logically see all of that stuff now and through the help of a, a nice person who I've talked to. <laughs> I see I that now. No, but, but you see, you, you I mean, I, I've known you for, um, you know, a few years and like anytime I talk and we have a lot of common friends and anytime your name comes up almost immediately, it's like funniest guy ever. And I, like, you know, when you think of your own sense of humor, like you got to know you're a funny person. Um, was that something that you feel like you developed early on as kind of like a, a defense against the chaos of home? Like, do you have funny siblings? Like, were you guys, do you know what I'm saying? Like, where does that come from? Yeah, all those things. Um, you know, the, the, the first thing that I recognized also is that I was an awkward, strange, fat little kid. And (laughs) if I was funny and awkward, strange and the fat little kid, um, the scary kids weren't going to beat me up because they thought I was funny. Um, and so, you know, when you're 8, 9, 10, 11 years old and you're looking for a way to not beat up, <laughs> you know, you, you, you realize, oh, hey, if I can make uh, this psychopath, this, you know, the, the first version of Dylan Klebold, um, or then Eric Harris, if I can make that guy laugh. Klebold 1.0. Uh, yeah, maybe, you know, when, when the stoners decide to come fight me, <laughs> then they won't want to do it. So that was part of it. But my siblings are hysterically funny, um, and my mother was funny. My mother was very funny, and you know, I, you know, growing up, I listened to all the comedy records. You know, I, I listened to the Richard Pryor records, right, um, and and the old like Lenny Bruce records. My my mom and my grandparents too had a lot of the Jewish humor records. You know, the Henny Youngman and all that stuff. Right. Um, so that was always a part of it. Um, but of course, it's a defense mechanism too. Uh, you know, as a kid, you, you learn to, if, if you make fun of yourself, then someone else isn't going to do it necessarily. Right. And so I think that that was certainly a part of it. But, you know, as I've grown older, I've also just realized that, man, I just like to laugh and it's fun to laugh. And if you don't look at the absurdity of life, man, it can, it can crush you. You yes. know, if you, if you don't have a good black point of view on things, it, it can be difficult. The, the other night I was, um, I, 
I had an event here in Los Angeles, and I told a story about you know the the worst day of my life that also had the weirdest event in it, which is that the day my mom died. Um, and I'm I, and for the listeners, we'll stop talking about my mom soon. I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> the day going. my mom, the day my mom died. Um, so she had passed out in her assisted living place, and they took her to the nearest hospital. And the nearest hospital was like a, a Lutheran hospital. So all of us kids got there with our spouses, and we're in the room. And um, you know, the, they've taken her off of the machines, and she's she's going to die. So she dies, but we're not quite sure that she's dead because we we can't tell if she stopped breathing or not. But there's no nurses or doctors in the room because they're letting us alone with our mother who's about to die. So she dies, but we're not sure. And a nurse runs by and my wife says, excuse me, we think, we think our mother has died. <laughs> and the nurse says, hold on, there's someone dying in the next room. We'll be there in just one minute. And we're like, uh, well, okay. <laughs> so, so that happens and that's weird. Yeah. And so then the nurse comes in and confirms that in fact, my mother is dead. And she says, you know, would you like to have the priest come up? And my sister Karen says, well, you know, we're Jewish, but it, it would be it'd be lovely if he came and said a prayer. So 10 minutes later, this priest comes up, and he's, I don't know, he's maybe 30. He's maybe 35. He's young. And he comes in, he sees all of us, and he says some very nice words over my mother's dead body. And we're all sitting there, and uh, there's a pause. He says, man, I still got it. And, and I'm, I'm like, I'm sorry, what? And he says, you know, I haven't done this in a while, but I still got it. I can still do it. And I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, so I'm one of those priests that can get married. I'm not one of those people that takes a, like, a vow of celibacy or anything. And so I, I got married, and I haven't been a priest for a little while. And so I was at home, and my wife was running late. And then I got in the car, and I got here just in time for your mother to die. And then I came up, and I did this. And I just, I still got it. You know, I can still do it. <laughs> I can still priest. And, and like, we're just, all of us are just looking at each other. And I turn to my brother and I say, that's mine. I, I get that. <laughs> right? Yeah, you got a room full of writers. Everyone's, like, got their notebook yeah. out or filing it away. Yeah, that belongs to me. I get the story. <laughs> if I ever want to write about it, I get to write about it. That's mine. I call it right here. <laughs> I mean, did, did, I mean, did the did the priest recognize there was any humor in what he was saying? I mean, he was no, none, no. And none. then he he said, you know, I know you guys uh, don't believe in the faith that you're Jewish, so you know, I, I did a little something extra just so that it w it wasn't too, you know, Lutheran or whatever the religion was. And my sister said, thank you for being so considerate. <laughs> and he said, no, just happy happy to do it. Everything just lined up perfectly today, so it all it all worked out. I still got it. He's in the zone. Uh, yeah, and then he walked out, and we're just like, well, that was fucking weird. Yeah. God, it's like... So, you know, what, what are you going to do? You have to laugh at something like that. Right, and that's the thing about it, too, is that, you know, you'd think that this moment where you're losing your mother is, like, uh, going to be all one way, and, you know, like, a, like like people often say, I've had some of the best laughs of my life at funerals. It's just the way life goes, and, and, and I'm with you. Right. Like, without a dark sense of humor... I don't know how you do it. And like, it's intolerable. Right. It's intolerable to me. Um, like whenever I find myself in a dark mood, um, which doesn't happen too often, but sometimes I'll just be like in a, in a funk, you know, and it's always a case where I've lost my sense of humor. You know, like I lost mm -hmm. that thread and I have, I'm not, 
I'm not finding the funny. And as soon as I get it back, things, you know, things clear up, but, um, it's, it's a necessity. I don't know how people function without it, but some people appear to. Yeah, I, I think, I, I think, I, you know, I don't take myself terribly seriously except for the moments when I do. And then I think, Oh, look at you, you know, look at you, you over serious ass, you know, <laughs> why don't you, you know, give yourself a break? Why don't you give yourself the same break that you give other people? Um, and, you know, I, I think a lot of it comes from being in a creative household as a kid and then obviously a creative household now um, where, you know, not everything is black and white. And once you see the shades of gray of things, you know, you can you can say, you know what, this is horrible and this is awful, but I'm going to endure it. And then I'm going to be able to recognize the oddity of that moment. Um, and that's, you know, and maybe people that aren't, writers don't often do that. Maybe they just descend into deep wells of depression and then end up watching, you know, 8,000 episodes of Chopped to get out of it or something, <laughs> right. which, which I also do, but that's, <laughs> that's another story altogether. Right. Well, and so like in terms of your writing career, um, you know, and, and the fact that you come from, you know, from this family, I would say it's a, it sounds like an eccentric family. That's, is that a fair description? Yeah. So, but, that would know, be an accurate description. Yeah, all the children are creative. All the children are writers. The mother is a writer. Like, at what point right. in, your, in your childhood were you um, thinking to yourself, "I'm going to do this too," or "I'm going to do this in some form"? Pretty early. Pretty early. Um, I was terribly, terribly dyslexic. Um, I, I didn't really read until I was ten, um, and so I was in special classes, and you know, being and this was again, this was 1970, so I didn't quite know what they know now about dyslexia and how to teach it. And so I was in classes with kids with like, you know, missing limbs and um, <laughs> kids in wheelchairs right. and, and kids with Down syndrome. I was in the same class with them learning stuff, which, you know, it, it, it's completely different things that you're supposed to be teaching these kids, obviously. Um, so I, di I didn't read until very late, but already as a child, I, I was making intricate stories up about my toys um, you know, I was, I was having my, my army figures, you know, I'd, I'd lay them out on my bed and have them fight wars, but they'd all be in my head and the dialogue would be in my head. I'd be, you know, which makes me actually sound insane. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but pretty early. And then my, my mom's first book came out when I was, so she had published a book called the statue of Liberty is cracking up, which is sort of a memoir slash self-help book on divorce because she was rather proficient at it. Um, <laughs> right. So that came out when I was, I don't know, seven or eight or so. And then my brother, who's nine years older than me, his first book came out when he was 19. So I was 10 um, when his first book came out. Wait, Lee, like and, your brother Lee published a book when he was 19? Yeah, so he he was a student at UCLA in an English class being taught by a writer named Lou Perdue who wrote these big, bulky action-adventure novels that sounded like Robert Ludlum books, like, you know, the, the Icarus agenda, you know, or, or what yeah. have you. Yeah. And he, he got a deal to write a men's action-adventure series, like The Exterminator, The Exfoliator, The Defamer, <laughs> you know, whatever it might be. And he basically said, I don't want to write this, but I know someone young and hungry who will do it, and it was my brother. And so he, my brother wrote this book with Lou uh, called 357 Vigilante, and it it under the pen name Ian Ludlow, as though he's a French spy. Um, 
And it was actually a, a pretty big hit. Um, and, you know, he'd sold the movie rights for it and all this stuff, all when he was 19 years old. Jesus. And so, yeah, I, I saw that as a 10-year-old. And, of course, I loved the book. You know, it's, it was just a guy shooting up L.A. as a vigilante. Um, and then there was sex that my brother hadn't had that he was writing about. <laughs> um, well, if you can't have it, right? <laughs> yeah, if you can't have it, you might as well write about it. Um, so, you know, early on I knew it was possible. And I think that's the difference with a lot of people who want to be a writer is that it seems impossible. Right. You know, the, the, the books you see on the shelves or now if you're, you know, if you're, the book you see on Amazon, that doesn't seem like it was created by a real person. Well, it's just a name. It's just an entity. Well, yeah, no, I was, thinking, I, I was thinking about this the other day with respect to music. Is like these kids who grow up in musical households, like I can't imagine how powerful that must be to see your parent just like shredding on the guitar and singing. Like, right. You know, then they would make it because, I mean, that's that to me seems like utterly impossible. I mean, writing seemed impossible, but, um, you know, musical performance and that ability is a different level. And, uh, it must've been a big experience for you seeing like your older brother, who's still a teenager do this. It makes it seem like this is something you can do too. Yeah, it, it made it it made it totally tangible, and it made it cool because I didn't view what my mom did as cool. You know, my mom was writing about divorce and going to parties for a living, which you know, actually that that part does seem pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but you know, it was it was just her job and that a job that she complained about. Whereas my brother was you know killing people on on the page, and that was that was badass. So it made it possible then, and then having an older brother who's a writer and who writes crime, you know, he gave me all of his old books. And so I remember he he came home for Christmas slash Hanukkah because Christmas is much more convenient. <laughs> um, and he brought me, this is, I was probably 11. He brought me just this giant bag of paperbacks and they were all Donald Westlake and Elmore Leonard and Robert Parker books. And he just said, Hey, you should read these. These are all really good because I could finally read and I just devoured all these old crime novels as a kid. I just, I read all of them. You know, the, the books that I would probably have read in my 20s when I discovered that crime fiction existed, I read when I was 13, 14, you know, and, and younger and going forward. And, and so I was writing short stories. Um, I remember writing a story in sixth grade. So I was writing from a very young age. And then in high school, I had a wonderful teacher named Kathy Kane, um, who came to me and she said, look, you know more about the great Gatsby and Ivanhoe than I know, and I don't need you to write any more papers on them. So every time I give someone the assignment to write a book report, I want you to write me a short story. Wow. And I was like, whoa, that's great. And she said, but, you know, it's got to be between us. You can't tell the world that, on letting you write short stories because not everyone gets to do the same thing. And so I would give her a short story for every single assignment. And I did that for three years for her. Um, and that was, I mean, that was really helpful. Can't you know, when you're 16, you can't, you can't go around telling people that you're writing short stories. Well, maybe you can now, but in 1987, you know, I might as well have said, yeah, I'm at home listening to Neil, Neil Diamond albums, <laughs> which I was also doing because I'm, I'm, I'm a Jew. So we're required. <laughs> right. Right. But uh, that's awesome, and I think that's you know again it's a it's a common refrain in the conversations I have on the show. There's often a teacher in uh, a person's life who is you know instrumental in setting them on their course. Like I mean, it sounds like you probably would have been a writer anyway, based on family history and everything else. But 
um, you know, it, it makes sense to me that a teacher who recognizes talent in, in a student would um, have the good sense to give them a different, you know, curriculum than the students who are just sort of phoning it in or, you know, have only like passing interest. Right. And, and you know, in my mind at the time, she was 800 years old, but she was probably 35, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and everyone thought she was tough and mean, but she just loved books and was pissed off and people didn't. And once she, I think, recognized that I was into whatever it is we were reading and I wanted to talk about it, you know, I, I think the ability to just be really helpful was something that she was looking for for, for any student that she could help like that. And she was, she was wonderful. And of course she, she's still alive. I, I periodically run into her places. Um, and, you know, it's, it's one of those things that I think about sometimes in relationship to my own teaching, because I've been a professor for so long, that sometimes even when you don't know it, you say one thing to someone and it has that ripple effect for years and years and years and years. And just having her tell me I was good, that mattered so much. Well, I was going to, I was going to say good or know. bad, good or like with regard to ripple effect, like good or bad. Like I would always worry right. about that teaching, like. You know, because like sometimes you find a student in a workshop early in their writing life, and you know it's you know it's never there. It's usually you know almost never there yet. Um, they've got a long ways to go, no matter what. But I, w- I was always worried, like, man, I could have like the next uh, you know great novelist sitting in here, but they're just early, and if I say something too negative, it could fuck them up. And and you know you don't want to blow sunshine at people, but. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? Like it, you, you recognize the impact yeah. of your words, and you have to be somewhat careful because you don't want to, you know, you don't want to dissuade somebody with real um, want to from pursuing. Yeah, I, I, I believe that, and then I also think that I, I mean, I had a lot of hard mentors. <laughs> I, I really did. I, I had a, a guy named Tom Filer who basically filed me emotionally and physically. Well, not physically. <laughs> Let me. Let me back that up. He did not. He did not physically defile me. Um, let's get that clear. Uh, but you know, he, he taught me something, which was that you shouldn't tell people they're good when they're not. Right. Right. <laughs> and I mean that it's a hard lesson. And of course, how I do that is different today than it was when I was younger. You know, when I was thirty and teaching. I mean, what the hell did I know when I was thirty? Yeah. Um, but now, you know, I'm 43, and I, have, I run a graduate school for the University of California, and I think, you know, number one, if I've accepted you into the program, you have talent. So now my job is different. My job is to push you towards finding the best way to get the most out of your talent, and sometimes that says you need to throw that shit away. Right. And, I mean, that's, that's, it's, no one wants to hear it, and I don't often want to say it, but it's also the fact that it's not going to be easier in the real world. And, you know, that, that, that's a hard conversation to have with any artist. Um, and, you know, the, the thing about being a subjective form, which, which of course writing is, is that someone's got to be the person who decides where that subjectivity is true or not. And, you know, when you're in school, that's the professor. Um, and, you know, that doesn't mean I've, I've always been right. I've, 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 of course, been wrong. Like once, there was one time in, in 2000, 2002, I remember some. <laughs> yeah, but have you ever had a student surprise you where you're like, yeah, this has got to go, or this person's not going anywhere, and then later on you find out that, like, you know, the FSG is publishing there? <laughs> you, know. Um, you know, actually, 
I can't think of anyone that I thought was going to fail who then succeeded. There are, I've had plenty of students who I thought, man, it might be tough for them. You know, this is really challenging stuff who then have exploded. And that makes me excited because it, it clearly had nothing to do with me. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's nice when you think, oh, this person has it, but I wonder if the world will see it. And then the world does see it. That, that's the amazing thing. But I, I, sometimes I, I think, oh, there's going to be that person who just explodes and then they're going to win the National Book Award. Then they're going to stand up there and say, and fuck you, Todd Goldberg. Here are the notes you gave me on my short story, you bastard. Maybe you recognize it in the New Yorker last month. Fuck you. Um, so what about you, like educationally? Like you have this, uh, you know, you have this talent. You're in high school and your teacher is kind of helping you along the way. And then uh, you go to Cal Northridge. Yeah, so I went to Cal State Northridge, where I majored primarily in fret boy. Okay. Um, I was a horrible, 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 horrible student. <laughs> um, just one of the five worst that you've ever encountered, because I was deeply invested in drinking Mickey's, and um, there was a malt liquor called Crazy Horse. I, I hope it's not still in the marketplace. <laughs> I suspect that it probably is, that what we would do is we'd drink it at school just to keep an even buzz. Um, so, just a terrible student, yeah. which makes the fact that I run a graduate school uh, somewhat surprising. But you know what? Um, I, but, a lot of people, under, like you get out of high school. I was the same way. Like I was just disengaged. I needed a break. Like the uh, <laughs> the, undergra- the undergraduate experience. Like I don't understand how you go through like 18 years of schooling and then you transition to college without a pause. Like, I don't know. I was just, I was interested in other things when I was 18 years old. Yeah, me, me too. But, uh, you know, I, I did very well in my English classes and then I, you know, I got D's and C's and F's and, and everything else. Right. And, but I maintained a high enough GPA that I could be in student government. And so I was in student government and I was the president of my fraternity and I was the homecoming king. This is an important thing, Brad. <laughs> I was the homecoming king of Cal State Northridge one year. How did that happen? I, I have a crown and I have a scepter that I still have <laughs> in a box in my garage. And, you know, we've moved it. So my wife and I have been together. Uh, we were boyfriend and girlfriend starting in uh, 1994, and we've lived together since 1995. And I have moved that godforsaken crown and scepter every place we've lived from 1995 until present day. And every time my wife was like, you realize this is from a party store. It's not like you are the Prince of Wales or something, Todd. It's literally cardboard with felt on it. <laughs> Whatever, man. Never, nevertheless, I was crowned. So how did, um, that, how did that happen? You, were, you must have been good socially. You were beloved socially at the school? I was, I was beloved socially, yes. I was beloved socially. It, it was an election. You had to run for homecoming king. So here's the level of my narcissism, uh, if, if we can roll that back a little bit to look at the artist at 20. Uh, I was president of my fraternity. I was a student senator. Um, and then I was also the chief of staff of student government, which basically meant I got all of my friends' priority registration. Um, and then I thought, you know what I need to do to crown this all off is I need to be crowned at the middle of an athletic event for being notably unathletic, um, <laughs> but being really great at inviting people to parties. <laughs> And so I ran for homecoming king and was bestowed uh, that honor. My homecoming queen 
of a young woman named Omene Ashimegi. I remember that uh, specifically. Uh, and what happened subsequent to that is for about the next three weeks, uh, I went around telling people I was the king, and that got um, that got annoying people <laughs> quickly. Yes, um, I spray painted on the wall of my fraternity house, the wall in front of my bedroom, the king's room. Um, we didn't do that house, which I think made our desire to paint it uh, at any given time something questionable as well, but nevertheless, I did it. Uh, I don't know why I wanted to be Homecoming King. I think I thought I'd meet a lot of girls, uh, and I think that, that it's good transpired. To be, it's good to be king, you know, whatever. A king it's good to be king. <laughs> I also had a vague sense that it was the sort of thing that I'd need to have on my resume later on. Like, oh, here's all the stuff I did in college. And in addition, I was the homecoming king. <laughs> and, and people at, you know, whatever Fortune 500 company was going to hire me and be like, oh, you know what? He had a 2.3 undergrad GPA, but he was the king at halftime. Let's bring this kid in. Yeah, let's get, let's get Goldberg. We need this guy. <laughs> So, okay, so you get out of your undergraduate years, and then uh, you wind up getting your MFA at Bennington? Well, I didn't get my MFA at Bennington for many, many, many years later. So I, I graduated from Cal State Northridge, and I uh, took a job. Um, well, first, I, I was working at Ruby's Diner uh, serving food, and I had an epiphany one day. I was walking out of the house, and I said, oh, I don't want to forget my bow tie. And I, I stopped because <laughs> you had to wear a bow tie at right. Ruby's Diner. Yeah. And realized I got I to gotta quit that fucking job. And so for a year, a uh, year, year and a half somewhere in there, I worked getting people temporary jobs for a living at Bogard Staffing Services, um, where I was so notably horrible at my job, I kept getting promoted until I was running my own office in Glendale, <laughs> which was, you know, it's, it's horrible when you can't get a job and you get a job getting people jobs. <laughs> right. It's just, it's stupid. So I did that for a year and a half, and I was, I was taking classes at uh, UCLA Extension's writer's program while I was doing that. And then after that, I got a job working um, for an advertising company, an advertising agency called Williams Worldwide, which made infomercials. And so I was an account executive for an infomercial company, which was a horrible, uh, life-sucking, dreadful experience that um, sometimes I lay in bed at night and thank God I no longer have. Right. And was still still taking classes at UCLA. So I took classes at the writer's program at UCLA for three or four years um, in everything, screenwriting, book writing, short story writing, nonfiction, everything. I took all, all the classes I possibly could. Um, and then started to publish fiction um, pretty much like 1996. I started to publish my short stories. So two years after graduating from college, I started to, to publish. Um, but I didn't go and get my MFA, in fact, until 2007 um, because I had been hired by UC Riverside um, to start this MFA program, this low-residency MFA program, and I didn't have an MFA. I just had my crappy BA from Cal State Northridge that qualified me to be a frat boy and homecoming king. <laughs> and surprisingly, the UC did not care that I had been homecoming king as it related to my educational endeavors. They were not impressed. So they, I didn't even put it on my resume at that point, I don't think. Um, <laughs> but they wouldn't have been impressed. And so I went to Bennington and, uh, and got my MFA. 
um, in 2007 until 2009. So I had the weird experience of being in an MFA program while founding a low residency MFA program of my own. Wow. Okay. And then um, you and you were and you were publishing. I mean, so you walked in the door having yeah. a, a long publication history, or at least a reasonably long publication history. Um, yeah. But by, by 2007, I had published. Um, five or six books, something like that. So yeah, that's not typical for people. So what, what was it like? No. <laughs> what, was you, what did you get out of it? Because most people show up, you know, having not published anything or having only published online or in small journals. And, um, but you walk it, in the door with like a, several books under your belt. Like what was the experience like for you? And like, what did you get out of it? It, it was unusual because not only did I have several books, but I, I also was a professor and had been a professor for several years, for seven years, and it was known that I was, at the time, also directing an MFA program. Um, so that was weird. And then the other weird thing is that there were people in school there at Bennington who I had written letters of recommendation for. Um, and then I, uh, my, my dear friend, Ryder Strong, who I do the podcast Literary Disco with, along yeah. with Julia Pistel, he had been a student of mine at UCLA, and I wrote a letter of recommendation for him to go to Bennington, and then we both ended up as classmates there. Um, and then my wife is also in school uh, with with us as well. She was also getting her MFA. So all these things were, were very strange. And what I will say is that it was hard to be a student again and to be on the other side of the table um, and to get notes from people who I didn't think knew what they were talking about, that being my classmates in some cases. Yeah. But I had to I had to turn that shit off. Like I had to realize I'm I'm here for the same reason they're all here, and that is to get this education, and that I'm here because I need it, and they're there because they need it. And frankly, at first, not much was asked of me. Um, I had books under contract that I was writing, and you know I was going to turn the work in anyway. So the 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 writing part was not difficult. The writing critical papers wasn't difficult because you know I've been a book critic since you know, 2000 also. So reading and, and reviewing a book is, was not hard. And at first my professors didn't really push me um, at all, really. And then I had the wonderful writer and professor Lynn Sharon Schwartz, who basically said to me, look, you're good, but you're not great. And you could be a lot better than you are. And if you listen to me and if you are willing to do the work, I will push you and I will make you better. And I was like, yes. I want it. I want that. And so she worked with me on all of the stories that became my story collection of the resort cities that came out in 2009. So that ended up basically being the book that I worked on um, at Bennington. And she just made me a far better writer. You know, she, she showed me all the shortcuts I had learned. She made me think more deeply. She made me not think that I was every great review I've ever received, nor every bad review I've ever received. And that if you want to be a successful writer, you have to constantly be improving yourself, that you can't be what you were when you were 29. You know, my, my first book came out when I was 29, and it wasn't a very good book, and I know that. And I've tried to improve ever since that time. And I thought that I was at the point where I was done improving, that I was, this is who I was going to be. And Lynn really got me to, to work harder. And she was really tough on me and, and brutal. And I have to say, the, the most gratifying experience that I've had recently with my new book out is, I don't even think I had heard the book was out, but it was reviewed in the New York Times, and she sent me an email just telling me how happy and proud she was of me. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm, 
I'm going to cry here sitting at my desk. <laughs> right. That's a good feeling, though. This Getting book, and, and Gangsterland, we should talk about it. It's been, I mean, it's been really well received, and uh, you know, it's got. An, I think it's got a really interesting premise, uh, and you could probably talk about it better than I. But you have a uh, a kind of a, a gangster who becomes a rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> right, for all intents and purposes. Yeah, but I mean, talk, yeah. talk a little bit about its origins and, and like how, and also I'd, I'd like to hear you talk about, um, you know, your love of crime fiction, you know, because you're such a, you're such a funny uh, comedic guy and yet you write these, uh, you know, these gangster novels. Like what, right. do, you, do you have any idea about the psychology there? Yeah, so uh, first I'll say the genesis. So, Gangsterland actually came out of a short story I wrote called Mitzvah that I originally wrote for Las Vegas Noir, which is one of those um, books that Akashic puts out where it's, you know, Las Vegas Noir, Boston Noir, L.A. Noir, um, you know, Milpitas Noir. (laughs) Every city's got a noir title. And so I lived in Las Vegas for two years from 1998 until 2000. And the editors of the book, contacted me and said, hey, would you write about the neighborhood that you lived in? And I lived in Summerlin, which is... Why is a good question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I didn't know if you were like, my, were you teaching there or what was the deal? No, no. My wife and I thought, this, this was 1998, we wanted to buy a house, we had a little bit of money, and we thought, oh, houses are cheap in Vegas, we love going to Vegas, we have a great time whenever we go to Vegas. Two of our best friends had just moved there, and we're like, you know what, yeah, let's go to Vegas and buy a house there for $100,000, and we'll live there, and it's going to be awesome. And then we got there. And our friends were there, and it was great. And we were, you know, we're, we moved into this nice townhouse, and we decided we're going to spend a year looking for the perfect house. And uh, by the end of about the that first year, we realized two things, which is that uh, our best friends are no longer going to remain together. Oh. Um, that was that, that wasn't going to happen. Um, <laughs> that we were having the time of our lives there because we were staying up every night till five o'clock in the morning coming home covered in glitter and smelling like a, you know, Victoria's Secret. Right. Um, and that if we stayed there, it was going to be the death of us yes. and that it was a horrible, horrible place to live. Um, and so it took us a year to basically extricate ourselves from that place. But I was writing my first book at the time, too, so it was a cheap place to live, and so we just we just stayed there. Um but then we, we got out of there as soon as possible. Yeah. So I said, oh, you know what? I, I can I can probably think of something to write about Summerlin. And what I remembered about the time living there was that they were building this huge campus for uh, a temple in in Summerlin. And I, whenever I would drive by this temple, I would think, man, the thing about us Jews is we love the desert, even though we spent 40 years wandering around it. We're just going to drop ourselves right back in the middle of one, <laughs> right. build a giant temple. And so that popped into my head. And then, you know, I'm, I'm obsessed with figuring out the perfect murder. Which Why? Why? Doesn't make my, I, you know, I, I think having grown up reading all that crime fiction, I, I think that had a tangible effect on me. But I, I'm fascinated by humans' capacity for evil and for violence and for the compartmentalization that people have with the ability to kill someone and then go and lead an ostensible normal life while going around killing people. And so from a very young age, I've been interested in that. And I I think it it has to be just because that's what I started reading and because my brother was into it. And so because your brother's into it, you become into it. That's That's how people 
end up liking Deep Purple. You know, like, oh, my brother was into it. Oh, <laughs> right. dude, sorry. Right. Uh, <laughs> and then what about what about what about Judaism too? I mean, obviously, like the Jews have a long history of persecution, and that like just that like I like cultural identity carries with it some degree of fear. I would imagine. Yeah. There's a huge part of it. So when I when I decided that I wanted to that the best way to get rid of a body was to kill someone, put them in a a um, a casket and bury them in a funeral, or bury them in a cemetery. Like that's that's the best way to get rid of a dead body. Like that idea popped in my head of how simple that is. Yeah, put them in a box and bury them in a cemetery, particularly an old cemetery that no one goes to anymore, and you could get away with it forever. And so then all of a sudden this idea of a corrupt cemetery run by the mafia popped in my head. And then I thought, oh, well, Jews don't embalm, so it's an easier way to get rid of the, the evidence. I mean, this is how my mind thinks, which is, you know, this is a problem. So, th- so I wrote this short story, and as soon as I was done with the short story, I realized, and the short story was about this guy's last day on the job, this hitman who'd, who'd fucked up a job in Chicago and had been sent to Las Vegas to hide out as a rabbi at this corrupt synagogue who is a rabbi for so long, a pretend rabbi for so long, that in effect he becomes a rabbi. And I said, oh, you know what, I need to go and I need to write the whole story. I need to write the beginning of this all the way through, which is what Gangsterland um, is, is how this hitman goes from being a hitman in Chicago to hiding out a synagogue in Las Vegas, pretending to be a rabbi, and then becoming a rabbi while also shooting a lot of people in the back of the head. Okay. Um, but so- the Judaism part... Is, is huge. I mean, it, it's it's a big part of it because I'm not a very good Jew. Uh, you know, I'm 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 a pork eater. And I, I in fact, just before we got on this call, I had a ham and Swiss sandwich. <laughs> right. So, but I've been yeah, taking it up why, my teeth ever since. Why? Yeah. Why? 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 Why no pork? I don't even know. Why? Why do the Jews not eat I, pork? It's a dirty animal. It roots in dirt. Oh, okay. Um, so there's there's that bit, but. The, the thing about Judaism, and this actually, you know, the, the reason that I wanted to explore this character, having Judaism be a part of his life and it, it forming new neural pathways in his thinking, that he'd been raised as a killer and now was learning about faith, is that I wanted to examine somewhat what I was going through just as a human being, which is that you know, I started to write this book when I was 41. Both of my parents were dead. And I was, you know, having that existential question of, you know, why are we here? What, do, you know, why did my grandfather escape from Russia and go to Walla Walla, Washington? You know, what, what was the process that made him want to do that so that he could be a Jew or that his his father could be a Jew? And uh, so I started to read all the books, you know, the Talmud and the Torah and, and all these books on Jewish philosophy and identity. And though I don't believe in the religion per se, um, because I'm not sure I believe in any religion. I do believe in a lot of the philosophy, but some of the philosophy is pretty fucked up. You know, there's, there's no line in the Talmud that says, if a man comes to kill you, wake up early and kill him first. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, some, that's some James M. Cain level noir right there. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, but you know, you get that in uh, you get that in a lot of these ancient religious texts. You know, you, there's a lot of gold to be to be mined, but there's also a lot of crazy. It just comes with the territory. Yeah. yeah, a ton of it, a ton of it. And so, I wanted to look at that intersection between faith and revenge, also, um, and and about the exploration of someone just trying to figure out how to to be good. You know, how to live a better life and, and what it means to 
forgive and and to to not blame yourself for the things that you've done, which is a challenge for a, a hitman. But I, I wanted to write a crime novel that sort of dispelled some of the shit that I don't like about crime fiction. And having read, you know, 50 million crime novels in my life, what I don't like is that there's this patent disregard for human life in it, that, you know, you can kill 40 people and leave them on the side of the road, and it's just a guy doing his job, and, oh, well, you know, that's a dead person. But in reality, every dead person, you know, that's you've ruined 30 people's lives yeah. for every dead person, you know? And the more I've read crime fiction as I've gotten older, the more I find that distasteful. And even even some crime shows, like there's a there's a show that my wife and I watch on Cinemax, and but it's not on after midnight, so I don't want you guys to be worried about it, <laughs> called Strike Back. I don't know if you've ever seen this show. No. It's, it is about two bad motherfuckers who work for some secret government organization, and their job primarily is to have sex with super hot women and to kill everybody that they see. <laughs> and so I like it because action-adventure, and my wife likes it because the, the two main characters are very attractive and take their shirts off and have lots of hot sex. And, but there was one day I was watching it, and I was, you know, I enjoy the show, and I just was like, you know, I'm going to keep track of how many people get shot in the face in this episode. And 40 people were killed in this episode. And I just thought, this, there's, you know, every every one of those people, this is a horrible job. There's thug number one in this, in this fake world, but thug number one still has got to go home and get groceries and toilet paper. And they've got a wife or a girlfriend or, you know, they've got a mom, certainly they've got a dad, they've probably got a sibling. And when mom, dad, sibling, wife, daughter finds out that thug number one has been shot in the face at a warehouse, cause it's always in a warehouse. And, yeah. right. um, you know, their life is ruined. And so I, that whole thought process started to come into my mind while while working on this novel that I wanted to demystify the idea that a dead body is just a dead body in a crime novel, that there is a consequence for every single action. Um, and, you know, maybe the reader doesn't feel it. Maybe the reader is just like, oh, this is a funny, you know, exciting romp through gangsterdom. But that was the the thing that was pinging around the, the small cavern of my head. Well, and you know, it makes me. I, I like that uh, trope, or if you, if you can call it a trope, you know, because it, it reminds me sort of of Pulp Fiction when the Samuel L. Jackson character has his like spiritual epiphany at the end. Right. Uh, I right. love. I love that. Like that's one of my favorite uh, things in movies is that moment where he has that, you know, awakening or whatever. Just because it 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 it, it seems like it should be more of an obvious question, and it's amazing how inured we become. Uh, we've become as a as a society to violence on screen, and yet mm -hmm. if, if like Janet Jackson's boob pops out at the Super Bowl, everyone's in an uproar. <laughs> Do you know, it makes no sense. It's completely fucked in the head. I don't get. You know, it's like it's really stunning to think about. And so, I don't know. It seems like a very sh uh, smart turn to take, and it, you've created like a really interesting character, um, you know, who's kind of straddling that line and trying to, you know, trying to come to terms. And so. I guess a question to ask then, you know, for you personally, having gone through the process of writing the book and having grappled with this stuff, both in your art and in your life is like, you know, do, do you think uh, a person can reform themselves, particularly a person who's done really, really shitty things? Like, is there redemption for that person? Is it possible? Um, I think it's somewhat possible. I mean, I think it depends upon whether or not you're a, 
a complete sociopath or a psychopath. Um, you know, I've read a lot of books about this sort of stuff. I read a great book called On Killing, um, which looks at the history of killing in warfare, basically from the beginning of America onward, and, and the, the way it was depersonalized to the way it became personal Vietnam onward, for instance, um, and how the tangible effect of killing someone up close has changed the effect that soldiers have. And, you, you know, you, we obviously see that every single day. Um, I, I think if you're a pure psychopath, no. You know, that's, that, you're that third kind now. You know, we used to think that, that there was just people who were sane and insane, but that's not true. I mean, there's people that are psychopaths also right. and who can walk about their lives, and maybe they don't kill anybody, but that doesn't mean they're not a psychopath. Um, and so that, that third kind is the, the one we need to worry about. Um, you know, I, I mentioned Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris from Columbine earlier, and I think, you know, what the great book Columbine by Dave Cullen shows is that if Eric Harris hadn't gone and killed everyone that he killed at Columbine, he would have gone and killed a bunch of people somewhere. Like, he was, that's just who he was. He was going to kill people. Um, but I think people can change emotionally, and I think people have the capacity to recognize that what they've done is wrong. And, and you see this more often than not with these kids that were gangsters, you know, that, and here I speak of street gangs, you know, the, the Bloods, the Crips, the, the, um, the Mexican Mafia, where you're 15, 16, 17 years old, and you're going around and you're doing drive-bys, and you're selling drugs, and you go to prison, and you realize, what the fuck was I doing? And when you're 15 years old, you know, you might as, you, you don't, you're not a fully formed human being, in my opinion. Um, and then, you know, you, you, you can learn new things. You can realize that you've, you've done horrible things. It doesn't mean that you've, you've repaired the bad things, but it can mean that you have a new thought process. Um, but, you know, I, I think, I think the, the challenge of writing about people who kill one another is that, unless that person has some other redeeming quality about them already, it's impossible for the reader to empathize with them. Um, you know, if they're killing bad people, you empathize with them because we all want to be able to take revenge and, and not pay a price for it. If they're killing innocent people, if they're Hitler or Pol Pot or something, right. it, it, it doesn't matter that Hitler was a vegetarian and loved his girlfriend or, or whatever Hitler's redeeming qualities were. Um, he still killed innocent people and did horrible things. And the, the one humanizing part of him is not enough. So I, I think it depends on the ability of that person to grow and change from that point. But I, I think, I think what, what, what American history at least has shown is that the prison system doesn't do that. No, <laughs> that, that we're, we're not solving bad guys by putting them in prison and letting them live with a bunch of other bad guys and learn better ways to be bad guys. You know, medication, intensive therapy, all those things, maybe they help. I don't know. Um, but I think we like as Americans and just as people, we like the ability to think that, you know what, if someone crossed me, if someone hurt my wife or hurt my brother or sister or whatever it might be, that I would go and seek revenge and that I would feel good from it. I, I've never heard of anyone who got revenge who then didn't feel like, holy shit, I just took another person's life. Yeah, no, you never, um, it never I mean, even on a much smaller scale, like revenge, whether you lash out verbally or you, you know, everyone's done this in their life, it's, in their life at some point. It doesn't feel good. 
You know, it's like it's like no. it's like a sugar high, and then you crash, and you go, "Oh God, I'm an asshole." And- yeah, exactly, exactly. Because you might feed that adrenaline at the moment, but you're going to come down eventually. Um, and like like every time the Oakland A's lose, when they win, it doesn't make it better for me that they lost. Right. right. <laughs> it doesn't change that in me. Right. Well. Um- I think on that note, just the, like on the, on the note of crashing after revenge, that's a good place to end, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, it's so hard to masturbate after revenge. <laughs> uh, well, it's been so fun talking with you. I'm, I, you know, I'm glad to finally have you on the show. I've been meaning to do it for a while, and um, what a great occasion to do so with the publication of Gangsterland. And, uh, you know, I congratulate you on it, and I wish you continued success. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. This was great fun. And uh, anytime you just want to come over, you just want to just record me in my living room as I sit, <laughs> we could do that too. I did. I did. Tell what's going on. Don't tell just me. Just sitting here. <laughs> Don't just sitting here, bro. <laughs> I'll just start saying bro more often. <laughs> just sitting here, bro. Okay. Maybe you should do a podcast called Other Bros. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tempt me. All right. All right. Good talking to you, man. You too. All right, folks. There you go. That is Todd Goldberg. Go get uh, his novel. It's called Gangsterland. It's available now from Counterpoint Press. Todd can be found on the web at toddgoldberg.com. He's also on the Twitter where his handle is at Todd Goldberg. And uh, I should mention, he's got his own podcast, uh, which he uh, co-hosts with Julia Pistel and Ryder Strong. It's called Literary Disco. He mentioned it in our uh, conversation. You can find that online at literarydisco.com. And it's also available on iTunes. Uh, and if you're in the market for an MFA, check out the uh, low-res program at UCR uh, Palm Desert. It's a good program, and you can find it online at palmdesertmfa.ucr.edu. Thanks to Kill, uh, Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app. This program, this podcast has its own official app, the Other People app. Uh, it's available for free wherever apps are available. You get the app onto your device. You can uh, take the show with you wherever you go. Listen whenever you want. You can download uh, episodes to listen to while you're offline. So if you're like on an airplane, you don't have a Wi-Fi connection, you can listen. It's simple. Uh, best of all, if you want to download uh, or listen to episodes in the deeper archives, you can sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. It's very cheap. And uh, just to be clear, you get the app. The app is free. When you get the app, the most recent 50 episodes of this program are there for you free of charge. And then if you want to get at the uh, other, you know, 200 and something, 250-something episodes, you can do that via the uh, premium model. And you sign up for premium right there within the app. Go get the app is what I'm saying. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Send word. Let me know what you think. And uh, if you want to do something nice for me, if you like me, if you feel warm, uh, warmly towards me at this moment, go over to iTunes and rate and review the show. That helps. Just go into iTunes, search for the uh, other PPL podcast with Brad Listy, and then uh, give it like a, a nice rating. Say something kind. I would appreciate that. And, you know, with regard to uh, I wish there was something I could do, I just want to, like, put a finer point on it, if I may. You know, what, what was, who was it? Was it Henry Ford or Thomas Edison that, pe- that said something to the effect of, like, uh, thought is the hardest work that a human being can do, which is why nobody likes to do it? Something like that. I'm paraphrasing badly. 
You hear about somebody suffering and you say, I wish that there was something I could do. You haven't even thought about it. You don't want to think about it. You don't want to entertain or uh, confront or embrace the suffering of another person and expend uh, real mental and possibly physical energy and emotional energy to try to alleviate or ameliorate. You know what I'm saying. Fucking think about it at least. Like Give it a day <laughs> before you say, I wish there was something I could do. Give it like 24 hours before you deliver that one. Before you lower that particular existential boom on somebody. Please remember that Benny Goodman died of a heart attack while practicing Mozart and that Socrates would only go to the theater when Euripides was being performed. Uh, that's it for now. Thanks again to Todd Goldberg. Great guest. Go get his novel. Uh, thank you uh, to you, the listener, for tuning in. I really appreciate that. I hope you know that. And I will be back again soon with another conversation with another writerly human being, somebody involved with the narrative arts in some capacity. And uh, you can listen to it for free. All right. I wish there was something I could do. <laughs> I wish there was something you could do. You could sign up for premium, support the show. You could... Uh, Give a five-star review. Write a giant block paragraph singing my praises on iTunes. Look at that. I wish there was something I could do. You know, I say it too. I'm not up on my high horse. I'm criticizing uh, myself too. I'm pointing the finger at myself. I can do something. <laughs>